0: And uh, before we uh, dive into this tonight, there's just some people that we do need to thank in light of the special moment that this is for us as a church. And uh, the first is Jack DeBartolo and DeBartolo Architects. They are the folks that really sat with us. I was actually looking back, I think our early meetings to plan this space were five years ago. And uh, they sat with us and heard us and really kind of took into account what we were dreaming about and then really made it a reality in terms of their design. So We're really thankful for them. Also for Porter Construction. Uh, Porter was phenomenal. They did a great job of kind of interpreting the plans that Jack had made and then bringing it to action. And they actually helped us overcome a few different hurdles that happened along the way and went over and above to make sure that we finished this on time. Just think about this. We finished a construction project on time, right? Like, so let's give it up for DeBartolo and, uh, and Porter. Along those lines, Matthew Brazelton is our pastor of operations, and he really uh, helped things just keep moving, just organizing so much on the financial side and the facilities and just all that different stuff, keeping all the different pieces going. And so Matthew, great job, we're proud of you. Uh, we're really, really thankful for Jeremy Rabido, who leads our production team. Jeremy Rabideau there in the back. And as uh, Seth said, hundreds of volunteers pulling conduit, building this stage. This was built by a volunteer, this stage was. Um, running lights, running cables, doing all that sort of stuff. Um, these folks have just worked really, really, really hard, and we're proud of you. Thanks, Jeremy. And uh, also... Uh, Brian Westland leads our facilities team. Brian uh, led a group of folks. I heard that he was out here mowing the grass on Thursday night at 10 p.m. So I don't know what if he had a busy Friday or what, but he was getting it done Thursday, and just so many volunteers that have helped keep this place clean. We, we actually just used to meet right next door. It's fun to point that way, and now it means that old building. Um, but we had to move out of there. Our lease ended Friday, and so we had to move everything out and be in here, and uh, those folks did that really, really well. John Cronwald and Mary McGill, go leading our guest services team. So many of you, I see you in the t-shirts uh, leading and serving and making this a hospitable place. Um, we're thankful to Redemption Church as a whole. We're, as Seth said, one of nine congregations that are part of the Redemption Church family. And make no mistake, it would be impossible for us to have done this project at this scale And in the timing, we were able to do it if we were not part of this larger Redemption Church family. The ability to have their support and their financial resources and their expertise has been phenomenal. And so we are deeply thankful for them. And I'm thankful for you, many of you who have been giving for years and years and years. You saw videos years ago as I was walking around on this land when it was just land, and you saw a vision to lay down roots that would last for decades and beyond our generation, and you gave to it you heard vision that this could become a home away from home where people could in, be introduced to their savior and their lord Jesus and you gave to it some of you you gave up vacations you gave up that new car you wanted to purchase you held off on one other thing that you planned to do because you wanted to give sacrificially and generously and i'm so so thankful so thank you all for making this a reality All right, so as Seth said, we are starting the book of Philippians tonight, and I have a little question for you. What do the three following people have in common? All right, number one, uh, the first person is a powerful, innovative, female CEO, an immigrant who runs a multinational clothing business. That's number one. Number two is a teenage fortune teller who, because of some unfortunate circumstances, has been abused and used. And this power that she has that on the surface would seem really cool is actually destroying and ruining her life. Number three, a corrections officer who spends his days making sure that thugs and criminals and crooks don't escape. What do those three people have in common? They were the first three people to become the church in Philippi. Lydia, the seller of purple goods, immigrant from Thyatira to Athens, or to Philippi there in Greece. The second was a woman, we don't even know her name, but this young girl who'd been possessed by a demon and had this fortune-telling power, and so people had enslaved her and captured her, and when the apostle Paul set her free, it ruined their business. The third was a jailer, a guy who was in charge of this prison that Paul and Silas had been thrown into. And in the middle of the night, when they were singing and praising God, despite their difficult circumstances, and they, the, the prison gates burst open and they could be free, this jailer was about to kill himself. And the apostle Paul said, no, 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 don't do it. Put your hope in Jesus. And he and an entire household. were baptized. And those three converts became the Philippian church. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 16. The church in Philippi, Philippi, by the way, is in what is modern-day Greece. It was the first European church plant that the Apostle Paul started. He traveled all over the Mediterranean rim, and the first church that got started was in Philippi. Paul had incredible affection for these people, right? If, If the Philippian phone number had come up on Paul's phone, he'd answer it every time. He loved them, deep affection for them. And you see the joy and the affection that fills this book. It's maybe one of the reasons why so many Christians feel like Philippians is maybe their favorite book of the Bible. You ask a lot of Christians, hey, what's your favorite book? Many will say Philippians. I think it might be because it's short, Uh, just four chapters. Hey, no, no, I'm not. Hey, that's fine. Uh, It's short and it's sweet and it's filled with affection and it's practical and it's hopeful. And it's very much about Jesus. And it feels appropriate that Christians would love a book about Jesus. And that's why I think it's actually a great book for us to study as we begin our life together in this new church home. Because as a church, we're committed to Jesus and his gospel. And those are the themes that really dominate the book of Philippians. There's some phrases you'll hear if you come around here for some time. You'll hear this phrase, you'll hear all of life is all for Jesus. The idea that we don't just gather on Sundays and that becomes kind of our spiritual thing and then we do our other non-spiritual stuff, but that all of life is for Jesus. And this book really reflects how important Jesus is. Just in chapter 1, Christ is mentioned 11 times. The centerpiece of this entire book is the first part of Philippians 2 where it highlights the 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 humility and then the exaltation of Jesus. All of life is all for Jesus. We get that from the book of Philippians. We also say around here a lot that we are gospel-centered and outward-focused. That we're to be centered on the good news of the gospel and that that is to then propel us out to be God's ambassadors in the world around us. And the gospel is a huge theme in this book. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Paul is thanking them because of their partnership in the gospel. In chapter uh, 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I think you could argue that maybe the theme verse of the book of Philippians is verse 27 of chapter 1. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith Of the gospel. I want you to live in a way that reflects the values of the gospel. I want you to stand together in the gospel. Now, there's a really cool thing that Paul does actually in that verse in 127, and it's hard to see from the ESV translation here, so I'll show it to you in the uh, Christian Standard Bible translation of chapter 1, verse 27. Here's what it says there Uh, He says, Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what that phrase here in our ESV, only let your manner of life, that phrase in the Greek is, is all about citizenship. And the reason that's significant is Philippi was actually started as a military colony following a number of significant military victories. And it was created in such a way that if you moved there as a veteran, you would be free of taxation for the rest of your life. How many of you are like, First plane to Philippi, I'm there, right? And, 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 you would get Roman citizenship, which was prized. Not everybody had it. It afforded you all kinds of rights that other people did not have. And so it was a very patriotic town that was very, that felt like citizenship and citizenship to Rome, that's a big deal. And here the apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. If you're a follower of Christ, you have a bigger citizenship. And so as citizens of heaven, Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, of the message of Christ. Here's how commentator Gordon Fee describes it. He says, believers in Christ are people of the future, a sure future that has already begun in the present. They are citizens of heaven who live the life of heaven, the life of the future in the present in whatever circumstances they find themselves. Are you a citizen of the United States? Perhaps you are, and praise God for that. Amazing rights are afforded by that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, listen, you're not just a citizen of the United States or of any other country. You are a citizen of heaven. And Philippians is going to help us to live into that reality as it pushes us to live lives as citizens of the gospel. Now, we're going to talk about the gospel in a number of different ways tonight, and so before we do that, I just don't want to make an assumption that we all understand what the gospel is. If you come around church, you hear that word a lot. If you are new to church, you maybe have at least heard the word gospel, but if I said, hey, what do you think the gospel is? If you're new to this, you'd probably go, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, even if you've been around a while, you may have heard kind of a, a, a like pithy sort of what's this or it's this or it's this. I want to try to give you a sentence that I think describes at least as best as I could in one sentence what is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God and is forgiving sin renewing his creation and reconciling his people and creation to God through his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, sending of his spirit and promise to return. That's quite a sentence, right? But if I have to do it in one sentence, that's how I would describe the gospel. Let me unpack that for you. The gospel is first, the good news. The gospel is news. It's about something that happened. It is not advice. Advice is what most people think the message of Christianity is. If you went to someone and said, Hey, what do you think the Christian message is all about? They'd say, Well, it's a bunch of advice. You got to do this. You got to not do that. You got to go there. You got to go to church. You got to follow these rules. You got to read this. You got to do, 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 do. That's not the gospel. That's advice. The gospel is news about what God has done. This good news is about Jesus. You take Jesus out of this story and you have no good news. He is the good news of the gospel. And what has he done? He has inaugurated the kingdom of God. This was the main thing that Jesus talked about is that he would show up and he would say, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he'd walk around and he'd teach in parables and he'd say, the kingdom of God is like, Treasure that was buried in a field. And the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grew into this big tree. And the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God. Jesus was talking about what he came to bring, which was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is simply life in the world with God's will being done. This is why when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, how did he teach us to pray? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus came to bring that kingdom. What's the main obstacle to us participating in that kingdom? It's our sin. And so the good news is that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God and is forgiving sin. We sin. We break God's rules. We break God's law. We ignore God by the things we do and by the good things that we fail to do. And we are separated from God. We are living apart from his kingdom. We are living with our own kingdom. And because of Jesus, that sin can be forgiven. And creation can be renewed. That's the next part of it. Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of God. He's forgiving sin, and he's renewing his creation. A lot of people think that the whole point of this whole faith thing is that you would believe in Jesus and somehow hit the eject button right before it all burns, And if that's your view, you need to keep reading the Bible. Because you get to the end of the story, it's not about earth going away and us going to heaven, it's about heaven coming to earth. So the point of following Jesus is not about how we can get to heaven, but how heaven can get to us. And God is doing that in Christ, renewing his creation and reconciling his people and creation to God. He's making all things new. He's bringing heaven and earth together. He's bringing male and female together. He's bringing Jew and Gentile together. He's bringing slave and free together because that's what he's doing. He's a God of reconciliation. How does he do it? Through the sinless life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, sending of his spirit and promise to return. He he does that through all of those things that Jesus did. Jesus was obedient to the father when we were not. Jesus died not because of his own sin, but because of ours. He was put in our place as a substitute. Jesus rose victorious over Satan, sin, and death. Jesus sent his spirit to empower us to live a new life of love and of faith. And Jesus promised to return. Now wait till the windows are done going up so that I'll get your attention back. This is a soft opening. We're working through glitches, all right? All right, so wasn't that cool? That one just went up, yep. Whoa, how did that happen? Oh, here they go, they're going down. All right, we'll wait, we'll wait. It takes about 20 seconds. So get a drink or wipe your sweat off your forehead or whatever you're gonna do. Because this next thing I'm gonna say, you can't miss this. Five, four, three, all right. Don't miss this the greatest opportunity you could ever have as a human being is to be Jesus' disciple, to know him, to follow him, to obey him, to be changed by him, to be trained by him, to be empowered by him, to live the life that is truly life. That's the best thing you could ever have. And so that's what this book is ultimately about. It's saying, look at Jesus, live for Jesus, center your life on the news of Jesus. That's what we hope to do together in this book. So here's what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna look at four different aspects of the gospel that we see here in the first part of chapter one. We're gonna see a gospel partnership. We'll then see gospel progress, how the gospel keeps advancing. We'll see gospel priority, what's most important. And we'll see gospel promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you work in your word. Please open our hearts to it. Please help us to see you clearly in it. We love you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so first, what we see in this book in verses 1 to 11 is gospel partnership, gospel partnership. If you have your Bible, look at it, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Notice, first of all, how Paul describes himself as a servant. He doesn't say, Paul, a super apostle. Paul, a church planter of churches around the world. Paul, a doer of miracles and a raiser of the dead. No, Paul, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. To all the saints, in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, maybe you grew up in a tradition where when you hear that word saints, you instantly think of special drawings that happen, and maybe particular prayers you would pray, or certain states, uh, statues that you would put kind of around your house. And, that, and you think of s- saints as these kind of superhero, kind of the, the ultimate awesome Christians of the past. And while we praise God for his work in Christians throughout the past, that's not what Paul means here. When he says saints, that's just simply a word for Christians. It's a word that means set apart ones, holy ones. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been set apart for his purposes. You are a saint. You go, gosh, I'm not a very good one. Well, that's why you need to keep coming. That's why you need this book. But you are, in God's eyes, a saint. He says, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice his affection in verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says in verse three, I thank God continually. I never stop doing this. This is always on my mind and it's always very joyful. Why? Because of your partnership, because you have stood with me, because we have been together. One thing that I haven't mentioned up to this point is that the Apostle Paul is writing this from prison. Now, he's not writing it from a dingy, dark dungeon. He's under house arrest. And so it means that he has pretty limited ability. to He can't go places. But, but every four to six hours, a member of the Roman imperial guard, because he's in, in house arrest in Rome, a member of the, the, the imperial guard would come and they would rotate and they would guard him and they would sit with him. And people could come visit and people could bring him things, but he couldn't go anywhere. He could write letters like he does in this, but he's not free. And in the midst of his being in this situation, the Philippians have demonstrated partnership. We'll see here, actually, one of the reasons he's writing this book is because this gentleman named Epaphroditus, who's mentioned in chapter two and in chapter four, the Philippian church had sent him, he was one of their members, and they'd sent him to Paul to encourage him to pray for him and to give him a financial gift and to give him probably some kind of care package. And so there's a kind of partnership that they have with the apostle Paul. Even before he was in prison, when Paul was traveling around and planting churches, the Philippians would regularly take a kind of special offering in order to be able to support Paul financially. They had partnership. That's why there's such a depth of relationship. Do you see the depth of relationship? In, In verse three, he talks about joy. In verse seven, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Listen, when I was doing great and I was out there defending and confirming the gospel, you were with me. When I'm in prison now, you're with me. For God is my witness, verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Get this. The Philippians were not passive passengers in the mission of God through Paul. They were active partakers, participants. Right, think about this. If, if, if you ever drive, like you, you go to another city. How many of you, if you're on vacation, and it, those of you that are married, it, like one person does all the driving? Any of you do that? A few of you, not not most. I won't ask why you do that um, because you'll probably say something mean about your spouse's bad driving. But but, but one of the things that I, on one hand, I really like to just ride in the passenger seat, let Molly drive. On the other hand, I feel like I miss the whole place because when you're just riding, you don't have to think about what you're doing. You don't have to make any decisions. You're not particularly engaged. Maybe you have to figure out what to play on the radio, but that's about it but when you're driving, you're an active participant. You're figuring out how this has to go. And here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you have been partakers. You've been drivers. You've been participating in this with me. You haven't been passive passengers. Let me ask you, are you an active participant in the work of the gospel or are you a passive passenger? It was really cool, just this morning, Mark Burns was here. Mark is a church planter in Turkey, who is one of our partners in the gospel. And we don't use that in kind of a flimsy sort of way. He's legitimately a partner. We decided a number of years ago that when it came to international work, we would just focus our efforts on Turkey and on uh, Juarez and Mexico. And uh, there may be ways God leads beyond that in the future, but that's where we're zeroed in. And so there are church planters in Turkey that we are building partnership with. And the way we look at partnership is the way that Paul viewed it with the Philippian church. It's relationship and it's money. It's not one or the other, it's both. We don't just wanna send resources and send money to people who are doing great work. We wanna also have relationship. And we don't wanna just have relationship. We wanna put our money where our mouth is and really care for them. And it's so cool, Mark just happened to be over here for a while. He'll actually be here next week and you'll get to hear from him. But we're seeking to develop more and more of a partnership with him. He's in a place, get this, this is amazing. He's in a place where his family is the only Christian family they know in their city, in a country of 90 million or so people with about 8,000 believers, which means today across all nine redemption congregations, there were more people gathered than there are Christians in Turkey. He's slugging it out. He's been there 10, 12 years, finally now leading a church that is established, that's filled with mostly Iranian refugees. And he needs partnership. He came up to me in tears after the service. And he said, I cannot tell you what it means to be part of this church and to have you be my church home. That's partnership. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. And you play that role anytime you give and as anytime you pray for Mark. And when you hear him next week, I hope some of you will actually be moved to want to support him financially and to partake and to participate in the gospel work with him. But you do that also at a local level as we seek to be the best friend our community has. Let me ask you, are you a passive passenger or an active partaker, an active partner? Be a partner, not a passenger. The good news is that the gospel continues to progress, even when Paul is imprisoned. And so that's the second thing we see tonight, is a gospel progress, a gospel progress. The, the reason Paul's writing, in part, is because he sent Epaphroditus back, and he's also trying to give them a little bit of an update on how he's been doing. The people are worried because he's been imprisoned. They're concerned, and, and they're most of all going, oh, no. Paul is this great worker of the gospel. Paul is this great communicator. Paul is this fearless, fearless guy. Like, what in the world? God, what are you doing? How can you let this guy get imprisoned? This guy gets imprisoned. You know, do you know the work he could do if he was free, God? Reminds me of uh, the story that's told in China about Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a leader of the Chinese church, and he had significant influence, especially in the kind of 1940s and 1950s in China. And that was important because at that point, most of the communists were getting kicked out of China. Or I'm sorry, (laughs) that's not true. The communists were kicking most of the Christian missionaries out of China. And so the local Christians, the Chinese Christians had to step up. They had to own this. They had to really take it to the next level. And so there was a gathering of Christians and a watchman knee was asked to speak at this gathering. And that was a great opportunity because he had this chance to encourage all these persecuted Christians like himself. The downside was he also knew there were communist leaders there who were spying. And he knew that his words would be used against him. So you know what he did? He, He got up, and he preached a wordless sermon. He took a glass of water, he threw it on the ground and it smashed. And he began to stomp on the glass, angry and smiling and laughing and crazy. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Wow, I made those symbols go, stomp. And then he dug the glass Smashed it down even more, smashed it down even more until it was all over the place. And he began to bend down and pick it up as though he were going to put it back together. And he couldn't put it back together because it was just scattered in too many pieces. And so he threw it up in the air in disgust and he walked away. And every Chinese Christian knew exactly what he was saying. The communists thought he was nuts. But the Christians knew that what he was saying is you can smash the church and you can break the church and you can try to grind the church into the ground and all you're gonna do is spread the church more and more and more because the work of the gospel will not be stopped. And that's Paul's point in verses 12 and 13 and 14. Look at what he says. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says, hey, listen, I know you guys were so worried that I was going to be unable to preach the gospel, but I'm going to tell you the gospel is progressing without me. It's emboldened other people. They've stepped up. They're beginning to preach. They're beginning to take the mantle. A lot of people actually thought I was going to be killed, and since I'm not killed, I'm just imprisoned, they're going, hey, I guess we can go preach. But that's not it. Look at at this in verse 13. He says, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What's he saying? He's saying all the soldiers who guard me know that I'm here because of Jesus. You go, well, how do they know that, Paul? (laughs) Well, because every four to six hours, a new guy comes in, sitting in a room with the guy who will say in a few verses, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And there's just no chance they're not hearing about Jesus. And I love this little uh, clue about the impact of the gospel. If you have your Bible, you can flip to the very end of the book, chapter 4, verse 22. Uh, Paul's just giving these greetings. And he says, uh, hey, all the saints, all the the Christians here in Rome, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What's Paul saying? Some of these soldiers, they're now saints. Because the gospel won't be stopped. We need this encouragement in a very fragile American Christianity. We freak out about everything. Can you believe this? Can you believe that? Oh my gosh, what if what if the government doesn't allow religious liberty and and what if what if we uh, lose our nonprofit status? And what if Christians start becoming imprisoned or fined because they won't participate in same-sex weddings? And what if and what if and what if and what if, and what if? Yeah, what if, what if it will serve to advance the gospel? Because God cannot be stopped. That's why Paul is so focused on the gospel. That takes us to the third thing, which is the gospel priority. As Paul said, in his absence, being in prison, many people have now risen up to begin to preach And uh, he says some of these people do it with good motives. Some don't. Look at what it says in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Some people, they got good motives. Some people, they're excited. Some people, they're doing it for the right reasons. Other people, it's for rivalry, He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Apparently, there were some people who thought, you know what, this Paul guy, ever since he got to town, everyone just, have you seen Paul's latest post on Instagram? I was listening to this podcast by Paul, and I mean, he's just amazing, and I wish that you would preach like him, pastor, right? Right? And some of these pastors have heard just enough of this, and they're like, you know what, forget that guy. I'm gonna preach the gospel and show them that I deserve that attention. So some people with really good motives, some people with really bad motives. What does Paul think of it? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Now listen, Paul does not rejoice in a false gospel being preached. We'll see that in chapter three because he'll call the people that preach a false gospel dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. So he's not into a false gospel with sincere heart. But he says, listen, if you preach a true gospel and your motives are a little bit mixed up, I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna hope that it gets better. I don't think that's the best way to live, but praise God the gospel's going forward. It's his priority. It's what he cares about. He wants people to meet and know and follow and experience the life of following Jesus as a disciple. That's his priority. We can get very bent out of shape on, well, I like this preacher and I like that preacher and I like this way of thinking about things and I like that way of thinking about things. And get this, theology does matter. But if the gospel's being preached, we should rejoice. Charles Wesley, I'm sorry, John Wesley, and George Whitfield were both part of significant awakenings and revivals that happened in history in Europe and in America. And they had bitter, bitter rivalry and disagreements about doctrine. And one time, they asked John Wesley, they said, "Hey, uh, Mr. Wesley, do you think that George Whitfield? Do you think you'll see him in heaven?" And he said, "No, I don't." They said, "You don't? You don't think he's converted?" He said, no, he's definitely converted. He'll just be so much closer to the throne and I'll be so far back, I won't be able to see him. What if that was our posture? You know what, he's preaching the gospel and I'm gonna rejoice in that. Let me ask you, could you rejoice in God's gospel work in a church that you would never wanna go to? That's Paul's heart. The gospel is our priority. Do we want to preach it well? Do we want all these other things to be healthy? Of course. But we have to rejoice in the preaching of the gospel. Here's the last thing, I wanna make sure we don't miss this before we stop tonight, is the gospel promise. The gospel promise. One of the things you'll see as we study the book of Philippians is almost every section has a verse that is absolutely worth memorizing and knowing. It's the kind of verse you might see on a coffee cup or a bumper sticker, Uh, these just kind of one-liner verses and you just find them all throughout this book. And one that I wanna make sure we look at because it shows us the promise of the gospel is verse six. Look at verse six. Paul says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the gospel. We have hope today. We have hope today, Redemption Gateway, because God will finish what he starts. He will complete the good work that he began. He he, he started it. He'll finish it. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We didn't choose to be born. We're not holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to us. I love this quote by John MacArthur. He says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. (laughs) Isn't that good news? That it's not up to you holding on to Jesus, but he's holding on to you? That he's finishing what he started? That he's not going to let you go? How does Jesus hold on to us? Well, a lot of us think that it's sort of like vaccination. You know, we, we just, we get a Jesus shot at some point that lasts for our whole life. And we don't really have to be very close to Jesus. We don't have to think very much about Jesus. We just kind of, we get injected with this thing. And so now once saved, always saved. There we go, got it and we got our ticket to heaven. But that's not how Jesus holds on to us. He doesn't hold on to us like a vaccination. He holds on to us like a chiropractor. You ever been to a chiropractor? Adjust this, tweak that. Hey, make sure you stretch, do your exercises. Next week, adjust this, tweak that. Make sure you stretch, do your exercises. Over and over and over. And you never quite get free from the chiropractor. You just have to keep going. You have to stay connected. You have to keep getting tweaked because you keep messing your back up and you have to get adjusted and you have to do your exercises. And and that chiropractor is there with you day by day, week by week, month by month, walking with you, trying to pursue a healthier life till you die. Now listen, we want the vaccination where we just go, I got my Jesus, I got my ticket to heaven, once saved, always saved, I'm in. Because that doesn't keep us needy. That doesn't keep us dependent, right? This is why I don't like chiropractors. I don't want to keep going to you forever. Like, heal me, for goodness sakes, right? But that's not what they do. So they they keep tweaking you, right? I know some of you are chiropractors. You're like, you do not understand what I do. And I'm... (laughs) I guarantee you're correct about that. I do not know what you do. I just know it's very expensive and it doesn't stop. So you can correct me about it later. But, But listen, listen, listen. This is how Jesus holds on to you. He keeps you needy. You keep needing adjustments. You keep needing him to stretch you. You keep needing him to grow you and walk with you. And he, he will. He won't let you go. Some of you, you've been discouraged because you've thought, I, I wish I just wasn't so needy at this point. And I wish I just had this figured out. And I wish I wasn't wrestling with these same questions. And I, I wish I could just have this solved. I wish I just had the vaccination. That's not how it works. He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion as he holds you day by day. Here we are, this very first day of celebrating God's work in this church. And someday I'll be gone and someday you'll be gone. And we have confidence that what we've invested in this space and the way we're gonna disciple one another in the next generation, we're we're confident that that will not be in vain because God finishes what he starts. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That behold, Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel, that you are making all things new and that you begin doing it with us. God, thank you for the opportunity, for the privilege of being your disciples God, thank you for the grace of inviting us into your family, of holding us, of securing us. Help us to trust you and depend on you and walk with you day by day. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take the